is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, at this point, if you have got a copy of God's Word, you can turn it to 2 Samuel chapter 23, and the passage is also printed for you in your worship liturgy found on our website. This morning, we're going to be wrapping up our four-month series on the life of David. And on one hand, four months feels like a long time to be spent to spend looking at one figure in the Bible. But on the other hand, a four-month series isn't long enough to really cover all of the material that we have about David in the Scriptures. It leaves room in some ways for us to come back and revisit David sometime in the future. In the coming weeks and into the summer, we're not completely giving up on David, though. We'll be moving into a series looking at the Psalms, where we're going to encounter David multiple times since he writes a majority of the Psalms that are found in our Bible. But today, we're going to be looking at some of David's final words. And we don't need to be told that final words often carry weight. Someone's final words are important. When final words are spoken, you are meant to lean in and to listen closely. This morning, as we lean in and listen to David's final words, we hear him point us to something encouraging, something we regularly need to be reminded of. We hear words that serve as anchors for our soul, especially in times of anxiety and uncertainty. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and listen to these final words from King David. You follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Well, this is God's word, and he gives it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to know him. I'd imagine most of you are familiar with a last will and testament. It's a legal document that's more commonly known as a will, and where you get the chance to direct how your possessions will be distributed after your death. Wills will also allow you the opportunity to express wishes to your loved ones, letting you share any special instructions or wishes that you might have for your family. I did a little bit of searching this past week for some interesting last will and testament samples from a few important historical figures. And I'll admit, I have not laid eyes on these primary documents, so I'm not claiming that these samples all hold up to critical scrutiny. But it seems like the facts are at least well attested to secondarily. So without further qualification, this is what I found. Virgil's last wish 
was that the Aeneid, one of the most important works of Western literature that he wrote, would be burned upon his death. Shakespeare's last wish was that his wife receive his second best bed. Benjamin Franklin's last wish was that his daughter not engage in the expensive, vain, and useless pastime of wearing jewelry. Napoleon Bonaparte's last wish was that his head be shaved and his hair divided among his friends. A last will and testament gives you insight into what beliefs and possessions are really important to a person. You can learn a lot about a person by reading their last will and testament. And in a sense, we get David's last will and testament in our passage this morning. These are David's final words. And as we listen to them, we get a sense of what's important to him. It's important to keep in mind that the death of David was a major transition point for the nation of Israel. As David gets older and he prepares to leave the scene, God's people would have been wondering, what's going to happen next? Will the kingdom that David established survive? It would have been a time of heightened anxiety and uncertainty about the future. And I think you and I can resonate with those feelings, especially in our world right now. We're not quite sure what the future holds or what our new normal might look like in the coming weeks. We're not quite sure how we should think about and prepare for the rest of our year. What's going to happen with our jobs? What's going to happen with kids' school? What's going to happen with our summer plans and vacations? What happens if we see a spike in the virus in the coming weeks and months? Will I be okay financially? Will my family stay healthy through it all? How will this pandemic change the way that we enjoy and even experience life into the future? We live in a time of heightened anxiety and uncertainty about the future. And in our passage, as David speaks to God's people about the kingdom, he puts forth some solid principles and timeless truth that can help us navigate the anxiety and uncertainty that we experience in our lives. In this passage, David is talking primarily about God's kingdom, which we're a part of if we claim to follow Jesus. We're citizens of God's kingdom. And that kingdom is vast. It crosses racial and geographical and economic barriers. And the church is meant to be an outpost or a base of operation for that kingdom. The church is actually meant to be the clearest expression of God's kingdom values in this world. And in these verses, we hear David's last words, but they're ways that point forward that look to the future of God's kingdom and how God plans to care for his people after David is gone. And as David makes his departure, he wants us to grasp three things about God's kingdom, and he wants these three truths to shape our day-in, day-out lives as followers of the true king, King Jesus. So as we think about and participate as citizens of God's kingdom in this world, David wants us to know that we're citizens of a secure kingdom, we're citizens of an attractive kingdom, and we're citizens of an exclusive kingdom. That's where we're going this morning. First, let's look at how the kingdom is secure. The first thing that David wants us to know in the midst of this fallen world is that God's kingdom is secure. Notice that even though David speaks these words, they don't rest on David's authority. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, 
His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. What David says about the kingdom isn't his guess. It's not his hope. It's not even his feelings about what he wants to be true. It's God's promise. David is speaking for God in these verses, acting much like a prophet here. David's words here carry the authority and certainty of God himself. So with that in mind, what exactly does David say about the kingdom's security? Well, look at verse 5. It says, He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. David here is referring back to the promise that God made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise that God made David that someone from his lineage would always sit on his throne ruling with righteousness and justice. And we've mentioned it in weeks past that as you trace the lineage of David forward through history, we see this promise of a future king, one who will sit on the throne and rule with justice, find its fulfillment in Jesus himself. It's how Jesus understood his own ministry, if you read the pages of the gospel, knowing that he was the long-awaited son of David, the fulfillment of God's promises to David all the way back in 2 Samuel. God is the one who makes promises, ones that are ordered and secure. And David is confident that God's promises will come to fruition even if he doesn't live to see them. In the midst of anxiety and uncertainty, David reminds God's people that God is one who has promised them a future, a future kingdom, and a future king that are secure. Confidence in these promises in a secure kingdom help us make sense of why some Christians through history have joyfully given up their life instead of renouncing their king. You've likely heard of stories of Christian martyrs who display remarkable confidence in the security of God's kingdom. One of my favorite books that highlights Christian martyrs is called Fair Sunshine, which documents the martyrdom of a number of Scottish Christians in the 17th century. And one of the accounts this book highlights is the life of Hugh McHale. Hugh McHale, who was a 25-year-old minister when he was sentenced to death in Edinburgh for his refusal to forsake his allegiance to Jesus as head of the church, king of the church. After severe physical punishment, he was to be hanged. And this is where I'll let the book Fair Sunshine pick up. As up the ladder to the rope he climbed, crying, I care no more to go up this ladder and over it than if I were going to my home to my father's house. Rung by rung, he called aloud, every step is a degree nearer heaven. Sitting at the top of the ladder, he took out his pocket Bible, and after addressing the crowds, he read from the last chapter of it. Standing up, the napkin was put over his face, but lifting it in a remarkable voice by faith inspired, He burst forth into an ecstatic offering of farewells and welcomes filled with grace and glory, a blessed, wondrous, and glorious amen of comparison. Now I leave off to speak any more to creatures and turn my speech to thee, O Lord. Now I begin my intercourse with God, which shall never be broken off. Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. Farewell, the world and all delights. Farewell, meat and drink. Farewell, sun, moon, and stars. 
Welcome, God and Father. Welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, blessed Spirit of grace, God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. Welcome, death. Now, Mikhail's words from Fair Sunshine would make absolutely no sense if he was living based on circumstances. But he wasn't. Instead, he was living based on kingdom certainty. Living and dying according to the promises of God, not according to his present circumstances. And it's so important for us to grasp that the Christian life, God's love and care for us, they're not based on our circumstances. It's always based on his promises to us. We walk according to promises that have been made to us by God himself, not the circumstances that we're presently experiencing. And that is good news because so much of our lives and so much of what is in our lives is circumstantially insecure. Think about it, your job, your relationships, your health. If we based God's love towards us on our circumstances, we would never be sure. What would happen to your security and God's love if you got sick or lost your job? Instead, we know God's love towards us is based on promises made. People that walk by promise, not by circumstance. The type of security David talks about in this passage removes fear. And it frees us up to follow Jesus and to take kingdom risks in our life with our time, with our words, with our money and resources. We've got the safety net of God's promises in our lives. What would it take or what would it look like for you to let the certainty of God's promises and not your present circumstances shape your life? So we see that first David wants us to know that God's kingdom is secure. And the second thing David wants us to know in the midst of this fallen world is that the kingdom of God is attractive. The kingdom of God has promised, or the kingdom that God has promised his people is one characterized by beauty, order, and justice. David speaks of this attractive kingdom and king in verses three and four, where he says this, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David uses vibrant words to describe the kingdom in these verses, words like light and sun, rain and grass. And these are attractive images, especially in the Middle Eastern culture of the time. I mean, the sun would come to end the darkness of the night. There was no electricity in that day and age. It was beautiful, strong, and it brought security and a feeling of safety. The rain nourished the dry ground and caused vibrant growth. And David speaks of a universal ruler in this passage, one who's going to rule with justice, one who's going to bring renewal and refreshment to the whole world. These are shadows. They're shadows of Jesus all around these words as David speaks. David didn't necessarily know who this ruler that he speaks of would be, But we do, because we've seen David's greater son, the one who perfectly fits this description that David gives us. And he's the key to this attractive kingdom we get to be a part of. In fact, you could say the kingdom is attractive because the king himself is attractive. The king that this passage points to is one who came to live and to rule for the benefit of others. 
One who came to pour out his life in order to bring blessing to the entire world. And we see so few of his kind in our lives and in this world. Normally when we see a king, that person's after power. That person's after prestige and control and wealth and honor. Yet we serve a king in Jesus who gave all those things up. He gave up his power, his prestige, his control, his honor, so that he might bring life and freedom to others. The kingdom we're citizens of is attractive. It's meant to be good and true and beautiful. And as citizens of this kingdom, our lives are meant to be attractive as well. As the church, as the people of God, we're meant to be the clearest example of what it looks like to live out kingdom values. Some of you are likely familiar with the author Rosaria Butterfield. She used to be a professor of English at Syracuse University. And during her time teaching at Syracuse, she was adamantly opposed to the teachings of Jesus in her lifestyle and in her belief system. She was befriended at that time by a local pastor and his wife there in Syracuse. And she tells the story of her conversion in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She tells the story of how her relationship with this Christian couple is what God used to draw her to Jesus. She talks about how hospitable that Christian couple was to her, how they always showed her love no matter what they found out about her, how they were patient with her many questions about Christianity and let her struggle with her questions, how they loved each other and poured out their lives for others. And she looked at that and it was beautiful and attractive. Rosaria was drawn into the kingdom of God because she saw something so attractive in the lives of these kingdom citizens. Do we long for the kind of kingdom that Jesus brings? One characterized by beauty, strength, life, vibrancy. Are people getting tastes of this attractive king and this attractive kingdom when they look at our lives, when they interact with us? It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by Blaise Pascal when he says, Make good men wish Christianity were true and then tell them that it is. Make good men wish it were true. We can make the kingdom attractive with our lives. We've been purchased by the king and brought into his kingdom, and our king calls us to enjoy the kingdom and to put on display the beauty of the kingdom. So, With these final words, David wants to remind us that the kingdom is meant to be attractive. And now let's wrap up by looking at how David shows us the kingdom is also exclusive. It can be hard to get our minds around why the exclusivity of the kingdom is comforting, but it turns out that it is. In verses 6 and 7, David turns to talk about a group of people who want nothing to do. They want no part of the kingdom that David is describing. He actually describes these people with the opposite characteristics of light and vibrancy. He uses the term thorns to describe them. These people are those who will be excluded from the kingdom that they despise. People who want nothing to do with the kingdom and its king. This forces us to consider a part of the Christian message that doesn't sit well with our culture. One that we don't often like to highlight. And it's that the kingdom of Jesus, it's got boundaries. You're either a citizen of his kingdom or you're not. And the fact that Jesus' kingdom is exclusive is really counterintuitively comforting. Because we know in our bones that evil deserves punishment. 
injustice deserves punishment. None of us could live in a world where no distinction is made between good and evil, between justice and injustice. And the kingdom of God includes both restoration and destruction, both salvation and judgment. We're promised a kingdom where peace and righteousness reign, where evil's one day finally defeated and eradicated completely, where all wrongs will be made right. And only citizens of God's kingdom are going to experience his peaceful and vibrant reign. Only citizens will enjoy the benefits and blessings of Christ's kingdom. But here's what's so important to keep in mind. Lest we begin to believe we've earned our citizenship. Lest we begin to think our goodness got us into God's kingdom. Anyone can be a citizen of this kingdom. The invitation to God's kingdom is open to all, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. No one earns their citizenship. We are awarded citizenship in this kingdom based on the merits of another, specifically the king himself. The invitation to the kingdom goes out far and wide, and we get to be the ones to take that invitation out to show others how beautiful life in the kingdom can be. It's yet to be seen who's going to accept our invitation. We're simply called to go out and to invite far and wide, called to invite people into this secure, attractive kingdom with a sense of urgency and passion. A few years back, the National Weather Service, they had to come up with some new techniques to get people's attention during dangerous weather events. They found that more and more people were ignoring their warnings and it was costing lives. So in order to instill urgency and get their message across, they began using new words. They'd use words like catastrophic or words like unsurvivable to get people's attention. And in our world, where it is so easy to drown out the truth of God and to ignore spiritual warnings, sometimes words like exclusive and judgment They still have the ability to get our attention, to make us respond. And that is a good thing. It's a kindness of God. Jesus, our King, is either making you new or you're set up to experience judgment. You're either a citizen of God's kingdom or you're rebelling against the King. David paints two different pictures for us with his last words. And he's implicitly asking us, Will you experience the renewal of Jesus' kingdom or will you experience judgment and destruction? And you and I can run. We can run even this morning, even again. We can run to the righteous king because the invitation still stands and the king wants to welcome us into his kingdom. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are our king Thankful that we live in a kingdom that is characterized by goodness and truth and beauty. And we pray that as we follow you, as we live and delight in your kingdom, that you would use us to point others to the beautiful kingship that we get to experience at your hands. Lord Jesus, we love you and pray that you would continue to bless us and keep us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.